Good morning, everyone. I'm here to tell you that when he said, I have one more song, that just made me go into a huge panic. <laughs> I love song leaders because I'm not one. So anyway, it's good to, <laughs> it's good to see all of you here uh, this morning. Of course, uh, tomorrow is going to be Memorial Day, and, and I want to encourage you to pause and, and for a moment give honor to those men and women who have put on the uniform and didn't have a, then didn't have a chance to, to take it off because they paid the ultimate sacrifice for our freedoms. The freedoms that we enjoy this morning as we have gathered together this morning, you know, unmolested, being able to sing these songs, being able to preach the word of God, being able to say almost anything we want to say, even the most vilest of, of things, uh, without fear of retribution of any kind, I suppose, at least within reason. But anyway, tomorrow's going to be that day, and so I would encourage you to spend some time in honor of those who have paid that sacrifice for us. I want to introduce this woman to you here. You may already know who she is. Her name is June Wandy uh, Mann. She is a first lieutenant back during the Second World War. She served in Africa. Uh, she served in Sicily and Italy, France, uh, Germany, uh, for a lot of years, she received, because of the work that she did, eight battle stars. And so it's incredible. And, and she wrote a book um, that was inter an interesting book. The, the name of the book was uh, The Bedpan of a Commando. And she writes these words here. An 18-year-old boy is carried into the shock ward, and he looks at me with trusting eyes, asking, how am I doing, nurse? And I just kiss his forehead and say, you're doing just fine, soldier. He smiles sweetly and says, oh, I was just checking, and then he dies. We all cry in private, but not in front of the boys. Never in front of the boys. There are men and women who have given their lives for our, our country, as I've already mentioned. And, um, and, of course, there are men and women who have served our, our country, and w men and women women like uh, June Mann here. And so tomorrow is an important day to remember some of these incredible, uh, brave uh, people. Let me remind you of our, our barbecue in the park two weeks from now uh, on June the 12th. We're gonna gather together and just enjoy an evening of being able to eat together with one another and enjoy some fellowship. It's going to be a great day, and so I'd encourage you. I'm going to say more about this next week. In fact, the lesson is going to center around that. But this is going to be an incredible way that we can reach out to our communities in a very effective way. Uh, this congregation is such a great singing congregation. When our voices blend, uh, there is a way in which we bring a message that uh, only singing can do. And so I'd encourage you uh, concerning that. Then, of course, let me just remind you that out in the foyer is the reservation table. If you'll go out there and get a reservation and sign that form and then make sure you get it to one of the ladies so that we can have a... a uh, a record of your, your reservation for that so we can make sure we buy the correct amount of food in those things. I don't know about you, but for me in Idaho, fall is probably my favorite uh, season. But second to it is probably the time in which we're living right now, the season that we're living, right, you know, as we begin to move out of the kind of cool, rainy season where it can't make up its mind to get an extremely hot which in Idaho seems like it goes from that to hot really fast. There's this moment in time where we just really enjoy just the beauty of everything that surrounds us. Everything is new. Everything is, is fresh. Everything 
is budding. You know, the ducks are starting to hatch. The baby birds are starting to hatch their babies, and they're beginning to tweet wanting their mommies and their daddies to bring them food. Everything begins to sprout. You might say it's the seeds of a new life. One of the things that I enjoyed so much 35 years ago when I moved to the Idaho area was all the, uh, the agriculture that surrounded us. There was so much of it that surrounded us. I remember being in Caldwell and living in the house there and looking at it across the way at 70 acres of land. Sometimes it was uh, onion, sometimes it was beet, sometimes alfalfa, sometimes corn. A lot of different things were, were grown there. Today in Meridian, of course, there are so many subdivisions around us. You know, the land has just been, you know, just subdivided. And, and I'm not complaining about that because I, too, live in a subdivision. But even so with that thinking, there, around Meridian, there's still a lot of agriculture. And as you go west of here, you'll even see more agriculture. Agriculture is something that is important. In fact, you probably notice that Jesus oftentimes, because of the agrarian society in which he lived, oftentimes use agriculture as a means of illustrating some important teaching that he wanted to get across to the people. Probably one of the best known or familiar parables that he spoke was the parable of a sower. Some have called it the parable of the heart or the parable of the hearer, but it's a familiar one. And it's probably, in my estimation, of all the parables that Jesus spoke, probably the most easiest to understand or, or interpret. And the reason is because well, he interprets it for us. For instance, he says that the seed represents the, the word of God. The soils represent the hearers who are listening or the hearts on which that word would uh, be planted or the mind, if you, you will, and how they receive the, the word of God. And of course, the sower represents anyone that would be spreading or sowing the seed or the word of God into the hearts of men and women around. But at the same time as Jesus was talking about this, he, he warned in this parable that there's a lot of things that are going to be coming out against the word, that, that the chances of that word germinating in the heart of man was not going to be an, an easy task, that there are going to be various things that are going to fight uh, against it. And so he lets them know up front that, that the things of the world, the worries and the cares and the anxieties of the world, Satan himself, there are going to be those kinds of things that are going to be threatening this word as it falls into our fertile minds. And so the word or the seed of God is going to fall on to the ground of a person's mind. And there's all kinds of things that are going to be there. And those things are going to be touching a lot of things in our lives. They're going to touch our every thought, our every feeling, our every attitude, uh, there are going to be things that as we begin to take in the Word of God, as you are this morning, or as you're just sitting down and reading through the Word of God, there are going to be things that you'll find in it that you need to make application in your life uh, from looking at it. But at the same time, there are going to be forces that are going to be attacking it. It's going to be challenging every thought in your mind. The other thing is that not all soils are the same. And not all soils or hearts or minds accept the word in the same way. If we nurture it, then Jesus says, you'll bring forth a lot of fruit. You'll bring forth fruit a hundredfold. But if you neglect it, then you'll have acres of frustration. He's not talking about, you know, physical agriculture. He's talking about the human heart. He's talking about the human mind and how we uh, partake of it. And what he is saying is that the garden of the mind can easily become a, a war zone. 
unless we are willing to put in the time and in the effort and really watch after the things that come into our minds and make sure that we are cultivating a, a good mind, that we are making sure that we are hoeing out the weeds and, and the briars and the things that tangle us up in life and make sure that we are keeping good soil for that, uh, that seed to germinate in and to bring forth a tremendous uh, amount of, of fruit. Because if we don't, then those things can run rampant in our lives very quickly. And the result of that is that Satan, well, he'll claim the territory by you know, virtue of squatter's rights. If you leave your mind open and vacuous of what God has to say to you, or if you for a moment let down your guard when it comes down to the things that you receive in terms of God's word, then Satan is ready, ready and willing to take his abode and take its place in our lives and the result is, is that we have a mind then that becomes depraved that begins to reject the things of of god so this morning i'm going to be talking to you about the implanted word of god in order to do that i think we have to think about well, what does god's word say about the schemes of the devil because he is certainly active and one of the things that jesus is saying to us is that listen he is active he is alive and uh, uh, well but he's not going to come after you with wearing a red suit with a pitchfork and a pointy tail and, and horns on it. He's going to come to us with people who are look fairly well adjusted, very successful in life. Maybe they're wearing a suit and a tie or, or maybe just a really nice dress. But they're going to, he's going to come at us in a lot of different kinds of ways. And so we need to know that there are various schemes of the devil and what God's word has to say about it. For instance, over in 2 Corinthians, the second chapter and verse 11, in a section of scripture where obviously the church in Corinth had had to discipline a man because of some sin. And the sin was so egregious that the congregation was having a hard time accepting the man. Obviously, he had repented of whatever he was doing, but the congregation was struggling with it. And so Paul has to remind them that they accept the man back. And that they fall, fell, fall into fellowship with them. And he says, in order that no advantage, in order that you are not outwitted or outsmarted by Satan, because he says, because we are not ignorant of his schemes. Underline that word scheme in your mind because it's not the first time you will look at it. Open your Bibles, if you will, over to Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, this is a section of scripture where uh, Paul is going to be talking about spiritual warfare that's going on here. There's a spiritual warfare that we find ourselves in. Remember I said that the garden is a war zone? Life is a war zone. That's what Paul is talking about here. Look at verse 10, uh, verses 10 and 11 and 12. There he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. But notice what he says, that we might be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Okay, so what exactly are these schemes? What does this word mean? Well, it comes from the word methodia. And right off the bat, you will be able to make the connection that it, you know, our English word is the equivalent of methods, okay? So it's what's, what it's saying, it says the schemes of the devil have to do with methods. And so what are his methods? Well, the word implies that deceit is involved. 
It implies that there is trickery involved or craft that is involved. And so it's not as though he's going to come at us straight up and forward and say to us, I am Satan, I am the devil, and here's my scheme, and here's what I'm doing to you. There is a trickery that is there. There is craftiness that is involved there. There's a lot of deceit that is involved there that comes at us from a lot of different uh, directions. What I'm saying to you is that Satan's hordes are like insects invading a garden. It invades from all different kinds of fronts. If it's not insects, then it's going to be weeds. And if it's not going to be weeds, it's going to be, uh, you know, thorn bushes and briars and things of that nature. But he's going to come at us in ways that are going to be extremely uh, terrifying. Then he says these words over in 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, verses 3 and 4. There he says... Even if our gospel is veiled, the word means to be hidden away. Even if our gospel, even if the good news is hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Notice that word, blinded the mind. It says the God of this world. He's talking about Satan. The God of this world is going to blind the minds of people. And so what does the word mean to be blinded? Well, the word is flow, and it means to blunt the mental discernment or to darken the mind. In other words, you folks in here, you are, you are people who have great minds. You think well, okay? You're able to discern things. And yet it says the God of this world is going to come along and he's going to blind the minds. He's going to blunt the mental discernment. He's going to darken the mind in order that you might be able to see the truth that is before your very eyes. And that's part of the scheme of the devil, to blunt your mental faculties. So you can't see the difference between right and wrong, good or bad. And he relentlessly attacks the mind until it becomes so depraved that it can no longer discern or distinguish between that which is good and that which is bad, that which is evil and that which is, is, is righteous or, or holy, that which is moral or that which is immoral. And so Paul talks about this over in Romans, the first chapter. Romans, the first chapter, and in verses 18 down through 22, now because of, of time, I don't have, you know, I'm not able to just go down through this and read all of it to you, but let me tell you this, you need to take time sometime and just, and just read what he says here, because he talks about a depraved mind that is, is there. It starts with verse 18, actually a little bit before that, and then goes all the way down to verse 32. And in that section of scripture, beginning in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who, watch this, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So there is a truth that is there that they know is the truth. And yet they say they suppress the truth. They push the truth down because the truth oftentimes makes people feel extremely uncomfortable. And then as you move down to verse 28, there it says, just as they see fit not to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And as you read on down from verse 28 and following down to 32, you'll see a list that is not a complete list, but a fairly lengthy list of how depraved a person's mind can actually become. Notice that, People who are unrighteous suppress the truth. 
Satan blinds the mind or blunts the mental discernment or darkens the mind. And the result is they suppress a truth to the point that they're not able to get a good understanding. So what does the word depraved mean? Well, the word depraved in the original language simply means to reject. So what is it that such a mind is going to reject? Well, it's going to reject the moral standards of God is what's being rejected here. It's going to reject the things that God has to say to us. All you have to do is stop for just a moment and look at the world that is around us. Look at the things that are going on around us. Look at the, at the, the evil and the sinfulness that's being perpetuated by those who no longer have a sense of a, a moral compass of what is right and wrong, and it's coming at us from all different quarters. But we think, well, that's flesh and blood that's coming at us. Well, no, they're pawns, if you will. They're pieces on a chessboard of kings and rulers, and then those beneath that are coming at us from a lot of different kinds of directions, whether you're talking about the society or whether you're talking about government or when you're talking about maybe even the academic part of our world, it's coming at us. And it takes a depraved mind to muddy up the water so much and suppress the truth so much that, you know, God's word is, is, can't be seen, even though it's clearly seen, even though God is very clear about what is moral and what is immoral, what is good and, and what is bad. It's very clear that you can look at it in Scripture, and yet somehow you're able to muddy that thing up so that it's unrecognizable or becomes acceptable to the masses of people. In other words, what I'm saying is Satan blinds the minds or blunts the mental discernment and darkens the mind. And the scary part is that seldom do people know what's happening to them. They don't get it because they're constantly being, uh, being attacked. Their mental faculties are constantly being attacked, whether it's through social media or whether it's through TV or, or movies or whether it's through politicians or whether it's through friends, or whether it's through a lot of things, there's a lot of things that are coming at us. And so how, how do we go about protecting the mental walls? How do we protect ourselves from the, the scheme of Satan? Because make no doubt, no mistake about it, that, you know, we, we're like a fortress, and we have walls that are, are there. I said to a person the other day, I says, listen, I am the one, I am the master of my walls. I am the gatekeeper. I may have some, some doors or, or gates in my walls, but I'm the one that allows you know, what gets to come in it and what goes out of it. And so how do you protect those walls? How do we watch after those walls that are around us? And the answer is the implanted word. James 1 and verse 21, the latter part of that says, receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And so we're talking about the seeds of the scripture. The seeds of the scripture is what's going to reinforce and fortify your mental wall so that you're able to discern. Listen, with every acorn is a forest of trees. With every ear of corn is a cornfield. So everything starts by a seed, and then it begins to grow from that point on. Well, if God's fruit is the triumph over Satan's weeds, then his word must be sown uh, not only far and wide, but deep as well. And so we need to be people who are really in the word and not playing at the word, but people who are really in the word. And I'll talk about that a little bit more here in a moment. 
But planting the word firmly in your mind is going to be so, so important. There is wisdom in God's word. There's wisdom that God has to say to us about how to live our lives, how to navigate our lives through the, the things that are going on around us. Of course, we ask the question, which is really an ancient question, is how do I yield myself to God? And so David, the king, he said these words here. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? And then he answers his own question by living according to the word. How do you young people stay pure in your lives? And he says by taking the word in and living according to the commandments that God has given to us. So how do I keep God's word? Where do I begin? And David says, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the word becomes this, this thing or this uh, way in which we're able to fortify the mental walls and stay strong because now we know what God expects of us. We know what's going on with us. Look again what was read to us a few moments ago by, by Ethan over in Psalm 78. Psalm 78. I think it's an incredible passage of Scripture there. If you'll open your Bibles to that section. And I just want to call your attention to verse six and uh, verse five and following. Here's what he says: For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed the law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should listen to this, teach them to their children, that the generation who comes might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may rise and tell of their children. And then he goes on to say that so that so that as a nation you don't fall into disrepair. So notice how there's an emphasis on teaching the next generation and planting the word in the next generation into their lives. Why is that important? Because each generation is a new generation, and each generation has to be taught the ways of, of, of God. Well, well, why? Because uh, people need a moral compass. God established how to live in a community or a society that does well by having an appreciation for the love of of god but also establishing a moral compass for navigating their ways through life and the book of proverbs you know is a great book when it comes down to parenting or or comes down to just living life wisely as individuals and so proverbs oftentimes emphasizes letting the seeds of a parent's wisdom uh, to be planted well into the minds of of their children it's so important pepperdine did a <clears throat> did an interesting study here uh university did a study back in well back in 2022 but in february is when they published it and and what they did is they they published this this study that talks about uh research on an adult mind as compared to an adolescent's mind and it was surprising and what they were saying is is that you know your children may be as tall as you are they might be as filled out as physically as you are. They may have scored super high on their SATs or their ACTs and have done super well. But they went on to say, but you can bet this, you can bet that your children's minds are not fully developed. They're not fully, there's not a complete transformation process that has gone on there. There has not been a complete change in terms of what's going on in their minds. And in this, they said the difference between an adult and an adolescent is the prefrontal cortex. 
I read that and I thought, what in the world is it talking about? And he said there's nine functions of the prefrontal uh, cortex. And what they're saying about this is, is this, that this part of the brain in a teen is still being developed all the way into their mid to early, third, uh, early 20s. That's, this is, listen, this is not a preacher talking. This is biology. This is science. And they're saying that synapses have not completely connected, that the prefrontal cortex has not matured all the way, and they lay out nine functions. I wish I had time to share with you all those nine functions. I would encourage you, you can, you can Google this stuff, okay, by the way, or I have even a copy of this behind me where they describe each of those those nine functions of that cortex that is there. The struggle with a lot of this is, is this, is that with most teenagers, well, they think they're already mature. I thought I was. Like when I was like 15, I was sure I knew everything my dad knew, you know? And so, seriously, you know? And so we all are kind of there when we're young. And in fact, we tell them that they're able to do that. But when you talk about this, this there is something so incredible there that they found that this prefrontal cortex is that where that performs reasoning and planning and judgments and impulse controls and the necessities of becoming an adult. I got to thinking about that and thought, well, that's why they send young men to war because they are not sure exactly what all is going on there. I mean, they find out very quickly. Or why is it that children will do crazy things? I hung out with some guys when we were younger, and I remember we were bouncing a baseball off the top of a, an overpass over a freeway, four-lane freeway. We're bouncing baseballs off the cement road, and they bounce back up, and we'd catch them. You know how crazy that is? But we thought it was pretty cool until Ronald LePango threw one down, and the guy on a motorcycle drove underneath it, and he hit him in the head. And the guy went out into the, out into the bushes, and ice plant, and, and wrecked his motorcycle. And so we got arrested. They took us down to the police station. The guy was really nice. He didn't charge us. He said, you're stupid kids. And it helped a lot that my, one of my best buddies, his dad was a captain in the CHP. And so they gave us a stern warning, you know, and they let us go. But why would it cause a kid to do that? because we don't always think well about what's going on. And so we experiment and we try things and we do things because we think it's okay, but well, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And that's why parents need to be instilling in their children a moral compass that's based on God's word. And until there you have this moral compass in place, then you need to be making moral decisions for your children helping them to make moral decisions that are solid. My daughters used to say to me, Dad, why can't we go to the R-rated show? I said, because your conscience is not ready to handle that stuff. You haven't, you haven't decided what is right and wrong, good and bad, moral and moral yet, so I'm going to make this call for you. And they'd get angry at me, and they'd get mad at me, and then they'd sneak off to an R-rated show, and I would catch them at it. You know, listen, why did I know it? Because I know what I was like. When I, I, you know, I, I got it. We need to be aware of this as people because it's so important. All parents, they need to be on deck when it comes down to these things. Seriously, you need to be on deck because we live in a world that is crazy. I mean, think about Salvador Ramos. 
that young man went in and, and killed 19 children and a couple of adults. What, what's in a person's mind that would do that? Where were his parents? Where was his dad? Where was his mother? How does a kid go in by two rifles that cost $2,500 each and, and your parent doesn't know about that? Even more important, where's God? Where was the God of kindness and compassion and gentleness? Where was sympathy that is there? Where is the empathy that is there? We have sectors of our government. We have sectors of our society that are telling our children that you can go out and you can choose whatever sexuality you want to be. Or you can choose whatever gender you want to be. Some, even at the age of third and fourth grade, you can choose your gender. You're able to do so. Biology says, no, you can't. You're not able to do that. And it's so, I look at some of that stuff and I read those things and watch it and I think, has our world absolutely lost its mind? We have a Supreme Court justice just lately was put in who's asked the question, what is a woman? And she is either ignorant or she's being, she's being one who suppresses the truth. When she's asked the question, what is a woman? And you, you can't give a simple answer with what a woman is. Or another official was brought before Congress and asked the question, the question was this, can a man become pregnant and abort their child? And this woman's answer, without even a second's hesitation, was yes. And I went, wow, that's crazy. Crazy, crazy. Okay, well, I can read between the lines, and I kind of know where she's going with that thing about gender stuff, you know. But even so, that's what's coming at your children. It's coming at them from TV, from radio. It's coming at them from their friends, from some of their uh, teachers. It's coming at them from the government. It's coming at them from all sections of uh, uh, places. And you say, well, Richard, I wish you weren't talking about this this morning. Well, listen, I'm probably the only one that's going to be able to because their teachers can't unless they want to get fired. We have politicians who won't. So someone has to say something about this. Because I want you to know when it comes to parenting your children, it is not the job of the school, your child's school. It's not the teacher's responsibility. It's not the government's responsibility. It's not society. They're not the one who teach them about such things. That's our responsibility. That's why all parents need to be on deck. That's why we all need to be engaged and know what's going on in the society around us and what's being taught to our, our children. Satan is alive and well. And he's going to come at us from a lot of different directions, and we didn't know that. The writer of Proverbs said this, When I was a son, my father, tender, and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live, and my teachings as the people, apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablets of your heart. Remember what David says? Thy word I have hidden in my heart, that I will not stray away from you. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. Apply your mind to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, that they may be ready on your lips. And so, parents, we need to be planting God's word and, its, and his values in, the, in our children's minds when they are young, when they are formulating their conscience, where they're determining what is right and wrong and good and bad and moral and immoral. That's when they need their parents. And so I'm going to say to you as parents, don't abdicate that. Anyone can be a rock star as a parent when they're just little bitty guys and gals. 
you know, when they're in grade school, they're, you know, anybody can be a rock star, but when it gets down to parents, that's when they become these guys here. When they get smart and when they, when they have good thinking faculties and where they can reason things out, and we need to be able to articulate to them what God has to say to them about important matters of life and, and what God has to say about things. So what's the strategy for implanting the word? Okay, so I'm going to give you three fast steps, okay, and we'll get out of here. Uh, you're going to see this and you're going to say, well, that's sophomoric. You know, that's, who wouldn't understand that? But here's what I've learned about. You know, when it comes to the word of God, sometimes we're not very good students of it. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes we read the Bible, some people, not all, but some people read the Bible like they do a car manual. You go out and you buy yourself a new car. They give you a manual that tells you everything about that car just about. And most of us, you know, unless you're Dick Jones or someone like that, you know, most of us, we get a car manual and we open it up and we kind of cursory glance through it, just kind of look very quickly through it. And so we got a kind of an idea of how that car works and everything, but we really don't know it. And generally we don't know it until a red light comes on the dash. Check engine light comes on the dash. Something comes on the dash and then we go, oh, you go back to the manual and you go to the back index and you find out what the problem is, then you turn to the page and you read about that red light. And then you try to figure out a way to fix the thing or have someone fix it. People read their Bibles like that. People cherry-pick their way through the Bible, smorgasbord their way through the Bible. I'm having a rough spot. I'm going through this difficulty or whatever. And so I open up the Bible and try to find out what's the answer to my problem. But it's better to have that word already implanted in your mind and in your heart. So when, you, when the check engine of your life does come on, you know how to find, you know, you know what's there. You've already treasured those things up in your mind. You've already got those things in you. It's already been implanted there. So there are three steps. Like I said, you're going to think that was really simple or silly, but here's a step. Number one, you need a book to study. And that book to study is the one that's sitting in your lap or it's on your electronic device. I'm talking about your Bible. You need to open up, you need to have a book. There's a lot of good books out there, but this is one you ought to be reading on a consistent, regular basis. The person might say, well, where do you, where do you start? Might I suggest the Gospel of John? Listen, actually, I don't care where you start. Just start. If you want to start at Genesis, that's in the beginning. That's a good one. But maybe the Gospel of John would be a pretty good one. Start where the New Testament begins. You're going to say, wait a second, Richard. The Bible starts New Testament with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it does. The first three are synoptics. There's something interesting about John because John is known as the Gospel of belief. Belief in who? Belief in Jesus Christ. And that believing in him, you might have life in his, in his name. There were three themes that are great for this book that I'll be sharing with you in the coming months here, but it's life, light, and love. Those are three major themes in the Gospel of John, and so if you're looking just how to deepen your faith in Jesus, then I would suggest that you go to the Gospel of John. If you're wondering about how do I navigate through life and some things, then the book of Proverbs is a great one for that, or even the book of Ecclesiastes will certainly identify a lot of traps that Solomon went through and then shares with us. So it starts off by, number one, choose the book. You need a book, and that's the Bible. Number two is you need to look. You need to spend time really looking at the Word of God, observation. That simply means, well, what does the passage say? What does the passage say in its context? What is it saying in its culture? What is the historical context, cultural context in which it sits there? Observation interpretation what does the passage mean 
And then finally, application, what am I going to do with it? You know, because there's no need to read this book here if we're not going to take it and use it and make it applicable to my life, right? So the Word of God goes into in my ears and into my mind, and it needs to get into my heart, so I'm acting out on what the Word of God has to say. I think next Sunday evening, I'm going to kind of break down those three there and tell you how those really work in more in-depth way. And finally, you need a nook. Pretty good at that. You need a book, you need a look, and you need a nook. Well, what's a nook? Well, you need to choose a time and a place where you are free from any distraction that you can just go to on a consistent, consistent basis. You need a place. For instance, my wife has a place. Her place is to get up before I do in the morning. When she goes into the living room and we have a reclining couch that kind of reclines up, you know, and she gets her Bible around us and her notebook that she keeps notes in and she just works through the Bible. She does it every morning that way. She has a consistent place and a time that she's going to do it without Richard distracting her or anything else that I might do, okay? So you need a, a nook. It just takes a place. It takes a desire. It takes consistency. So make sure that when you're reading that you, you, have, your Bible, you have a Bible that you can read, one that communicates to you. If it's the King James, then the King James. If it's the New American Standard, then the New American Standard. You know, but choose a translation that speaks to you that you can understand okay, that you can really get into. Pick a time of consistency, or he talked about that. And understand this, that, that sometimes we're overwhelmed by this book, because I told you, well, this book has 66, you know, books in it. It's got 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the, the New Testament. But you, what you need to understand is that you can read this book at regular reading speed. You can read it in 72 hours. 72 Hours. Half the books of the Bible can be read in less than 30 minutes. 26 of them in less than 15 minutes. Okay, so I'm not saying that you got to tackle Genesis and all the chapters. I'm not saying you have to tackle, you know, Psalm 119 and all the verses. I'm saying that you can take this Bible and study it and systematically come to an understanding of the things that God would have you to know. So planning the word in your heart and personalizing, personalizing it and analyzing it uh, for application will enable you uh, to reap bushels of benefit. And you will reinforce your mental walls so Satan can't hurt you. And you'll reap a harvest. But to do so, you've got to get into the word in order to get God into you. And so as, as James, the Lord's brother, said... In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. I had a person say to me the other day, well, you know what? Only a weak person cares about God or needs God. Only a weak person needs the Bible. No, a humble person does. And a person who knows that they don't have it all together does. Let me tell you why. You look at the life of Paul. You tell me that guy was a weakling. You look at our Lord Jesus. Tell me that man was a weakling. Uh... Strong people are those who stay close to one who's able to help them through life and to help them navigate through life. You know, uh, Thomas Jefferson, I told you several weeks back that Thomas Jefferson, that he took his Bible and he cut out all the passages that were miraculous. But the one thing he said about the Bible was is that this nation needs this book. It needs the morality that Jesus taught in this book. It needs to be applied to the hearts of citizens. He said that. 
Well, I think we need more than just that. I need, think we need to have trust in a Savior that's able to save us, who resurrected from the grave. But listen, the implanted word will give you direction in life. So may God bless you as you think about implanting God's word more into your hearts. And as you think about your relationship with Jesus and your response to him, while together we stand and while we sing, and you make your choice.